bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these big signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Happy New Year. I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is the first Tax Credit Tuesday of 2013. Today is Tuesday, January 8th, 2013. Tomorrow, I head to Miami to speak at Novogratik & Company's Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Developers Conference. We're expecting nearly 200 attendees. Also, we have former Congressman Rick Lazio keynoting Thursday morning. I begin this week's podcast with a summary of the key tax credit provisions enacted into law last week by the American Taxpayer Relief Act of 2012. I will then take a look at what lies ahead for the 113th Congress that convened last week. In our new market tax credit discussion, I have a related update regarding the planned timing of the next allocation award round. In this week's historic tax credit section, I'll discuss some guidance published last month by the National Park Service regarding its new fee schedule for historic tax credit projects. In our local housing tax credit segment, I'll share two state-level updates. First, I'll describe a recent court ruling in Ohio that will keep real estate taxes lower for properties with income restrictions, including long housing tax credit properties. And, in California, new information has been released regarding operating cost underwriting minimums for 2013 and 2014. And finally, in our renewable energy discussion, I'll talk about a change in the law that was enacted as part of the American Taxpayer Relief Act of 2012 that relates to the eligibility of renewable energy projects for production tax credits. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, as you know, last week Congress approved legislation aimed at avoiding, or at least delaying, the so-called fiscal cliff. And that legislation includes a number of key tax extender provisions. H.R. 8, the American Taxpayer Relief Act of 2012, was approved by the Senate by a vote of 89 to 8, and then by the House of Representatives by a vote of 257 to 167. President Obama then signed the bill into law on January 2nd. So what's in the bill? The bill extends the new market tax credit for two years, providing a maximum annual amount of qualified equity investments of $3.5 billion each year. The bill also extends and modifies the 9% low housing tax credit floor, such that the 9% floor now applies to properties with low housing tax credit allocations made before January 1, 2014. So the place and service requirement is no longer applicable. In addition, the package also retroactively extended the provision that the basic housing allowance of a military member or member of the military is not considered income for purposes of calculating whether that person qualifies as a low-income tenant. This provision applies from December 31, or really is extended, 
from December 31, 2011 through December 31, 2013. HR 8 also, of note, includes a one-year extension of 50% bonus depreciation, as well as a one-year extension of the WIND production tax credit. Now, the language of the law includes an important change regarding the WIND production tax credit that I'll discuss in more detail in the Renewable Energy section of today's podcast. In addition, as you most certainly know, the law also addresses income tax rates. The highest income tax rate on ordinary income will be unchanged for joint filers earning less than $450,000 per year, and that number is $400,000 in the case of single filers. On amounts above those thresholds, the rates will increase from 35% to 39.6%. For amounts below those thresholds, the law permanently extended existing tax rates. I want to emphasize permanently extended existing tax rates. In addition, for taxpayers above those upper thresholds, the top income tax rate on long-term capital gains and dividends has increased from 15% to 20%. Another significant provision of the bill is that it permanently and retroactively adjusts the alternative minimum tax, or AMT, and it's suggesting the threshold that will prevent this tax from impacting significantly additional taxpayers on a year-to-year basis. This, however, eliminates the need for the annual AMT patch. This annual AMT patch has become a regular item included in the perennial tax extenders package and in some ways helped get the tax extenders package passed because the AMT patch would have affected so many individual taxpayers. So what's out? On the other hand, there are a number of things that the fiscal cliff did not, did not address. These include an increase in the debt limit, a way to avoid the sequestration mandated by the Budget Control Act, did not include an extension of the payroll tax holiday that temporarily lowered the employee portion of the Social Security tax from 6.2% to 4.2%, and did not include tax relief for areas impacted by Hurricane or Superstorm Sandy. Now, regarding Superstorm Sandy relief, lawmakers did restart the process late last week to approve legislation, and those efforts are expected to continue this week and next. Regarding the debt ceiling, the Treasury Department can take measures to avoid default in the near term, but it's anticipated that Congress will need to act by March or April. Regarding sequestration, the fiscal cliff legislation delays until March 27th the approximately $109 billion in across-the-board spending cuts that were originally scheduled to take effect on January 2nd. The cost of delaying the spending cuts is about $24 billion, which the bill offsets by decreasing fiscal year 2013 discretionary spending by $4 billion and decreasing the fiscal 2014 discretionary spending cap by $8 billion. And then it also raises revenue through a change in the taxation of retirement plans. The remaining $85 billion in spending cuts will occur through across-the-board cuts scheduled for March 27th. That, unless Congress takes action to again delay or alter the cuts. That deadline of March 27th coincides with when Congress must address fiscal year 2013 appropriations because March 27th is when the current continuing resolution that funds all federal agencies expires. So as you can see, while the immediate fiscal cliff may have been avoided, 
there are still significant issues and significant upcoming cliffs pending in Congress. And then there's also a growing momentum or continuing momentum for tax reform. In new market tax credit news, quickly following the announcement that the new market tax credit had been extended, the Community Development Financial Institutions Fund announced last week that it is currently reviewing applications that were received under the 2012 new market tax credit allocation application round and plans to announce the awards in April. I note that that April announcement date will be just in time for Novogratz's June New Market Tax Credit Conference in Washington, D.C. Now, as mentioned earlier in the podcast, the American Taxpayer Relief Act of 2012 included an extension of the New Market Tax Credit Program for 2012 and 2013, providing $3.5 billion in tax credit allocation authority for each year. With this two-year extension secured, an allocation award round is only a few months away, April, so I'd also remind you that rather than wait until our June conference, you should join Novigrad and Company at our New Market Tax Credit Conference later this month, January 24th and 25th in San Diego, California. You can register online at the, for the conference at www.novico.com events. We're expecting more than 600 community development professionals, and it does promise to be a memorable conference. I do hope to see you there. In other new market tax credit news, last week, the CD5 Fund released its monthly update to its ongoing Qualified Equity Investment Issuance Report. The report identifies the dollar amount of allocation authority that's been issued to investors, as well as the amount remaining to be issued to investors. The amount still available in new market tax credit allocation authority has dropped to $2.1 billion as of January 3rd, although Nearly all of that $2.1 billion amount is likely already unofficially committed or soft-circled. That said, this report does not take into account the two newly approved application rounds that represent a total of $7 billion in tax credit authority yet to be awarded, $3.5 billion this year and $3.5 billion next year. In historic tax credit news, as we reported in a podcast last month, the National Park Service has changed its application review fees for historic tax credit projects. The agency simplified the fee structure by creating three project categories. The new application review fees took effect on December 31st of last year. The agency has posted a frequently asked questions document to its website to help applicants understand the changes. The 12-question FAQ addresses issues related to the transition including when and how fees are assessed, how project costs are determined, which fee schedule applies to a given project, how to address overpayment or underpayment of fees, and how and when to pay the application's fees. Now, the main takeaway from the FAQ document is that actual project costs determine the final application fee and that the fee schedule used is based on when the Part 2 of the application was submitted. Additionally, the FAQ explained that functionally related complexes and phased projects would be assessed as a single project. One change to the application fees is that the National Park Service will no longer offer a discount for groups of adjacent or contiguous buildings of similar architectural style that are not part of a functionally related complex. Instead, each building will be assessed fees as a separate project. I encourage you to check out the document the National Park Service's website. 
It'll answer many of the questions that you may have about how the new fee schedule affects your project. You can access it via the National Park Service's Technical Preservation Services page. And, as always, if you have questions about the revised fees or other historic tax credit questions, please contact someone at Novogratic and Company. I encourage you to contact particularly Owen Gray in our San Francisco office or Tom Bosha in our Cleveland, Ohio office. In low-income housing tax credit news, low-income housing tax credit property owners in Ohio are celebrating a significant legislative victory. Governor John Kasich signed a bill into law on December 20th that includes a provision that will keep real estate taxes lower for properties with income restrictions, including low-income housing tax credit properties. The provision was added to HB 510 during Ohio's lame-duck congressional session in an effort to make law a practice that had been common in the state before a, a previous bill passed earlier in 2012 that prohibited it. Now, the story begins with a 2009 Ohio Supreme Court ruling that allowed owners of affordable housing properties with income restrictions to appeal property taxes assessed against their properties. In the case, Woda Ivy Glen Limited Partnership versus Fayette City Board of Revision, Ohio, the Ohio Supreme Court ruled that the city's Board of Tax Appeals erred when it valued a low-income tax credit property without regard to federally imposed restrictions. Owners of low-income tax credit properties in Ohio used the case to appeal real estate taxes assessed against their properties. This generally resulted in lower property tax valuations, which led to lower property tax bills for income-restricted properties. Now, the WOTA decision enabled county auditors to lower the property taxes on income-restricted buildings. However, that changed last year when the Ohio General Assembly passed a budget bill that required county auditors to ignore property restrictions when determining a property's value. Now, according to the Ohio Housing Council, this provision was not intended to undo the WOTA decision, but it did. The Ohio Housing Council worked with the Ohio Department of Taxation, the State Assembly, and other stakeholders to restore the auditor's ability to consider restrictions, income restrictions, when assessing the valuation of income-restricted buildings. Legislators passed an amendment as part of HB 510 that compels auditors to consider a property's encumbrances when determining its valuation for property tax purposes. The House and the Senate passed the bill in December, and they sent it on to the governor who signed it. The Ohio Housing Council described the change as a huge victory for the low-income housing tax credit industry. Since the auditor can now consider a property's restrictions during the valuation process, low-income housing tax credit property owners should end up paying lower taxes for their rent and income-restricted properties. We'll be running an article on this change and what it'll mean for owners of low-income housing tax credit properties in the February issue of the Journal of Tax Credits. And if you aren't a subscriber, please call 415-356-7970 or visit www.novaco.com in order to subscribe. In the meantime, you can contact Renee Beaver in our Cleveland, Ohio office regarding the impact of this change in law. Renee can be reached at 216-298-9000 or at renee.beaver at novaco.com. That's R-E-N-E-E dot B-E-A-V-E-R at novaco.com. Now, turning to the state of California... The California Tax Credit Allocation Committee has released its operating cost minimums for 2013 and 2014. 
The committee, or TCAC as it's commonly known, releases operating costs for delinquency tax credit funded properties each year. TCAC collects operating cost data for all California delinquency tax credit properties in their initial federal compliance period and their extended use periods. California collects information from more than 2,900 properties and uses that information to estimate operating costs and to identify trends in its portfolio. TCAC has collected operating cost data from property owners since 2004 and in 2009 began requiring owners to submit audited financial data. The state uses operating cost data from the last five years to determine the average operating cost minimums statewide, as well as determining average cost minimums regionally and by housing type. TCAC eliminates erroneous data as well as high and low outliers from their data set, and they then determine average minimum costs. It uses various multipliers to calculate the average operating minimums for different unit types. TCAC found the following. Operating costs increased 2.6% statewide in 2011, and nearly double that, 5.1%, during 2012. The San Francisco County, North and East Bay region and South and West Bay region had the highest region increases. In 2011, those areas experienced an increase of between 5 and 10%. During that same time, the rest of the state's regions experienced an increase of less than 5% in operating costs. Turning to 2012, those areas experienced an increase of 7 to 16%. Statewide, the top three factors leading to an increase in operating costs were water sewer costs, administrative costs, and property management costs. Conversely, insurance, utility, and maintenance costs moderated in 2011 and 2012 as compared to 2010. Now, the agency provides minimums for 10 regions and all the remaining areas of the state. It also sets operating costs, operating cost minimums, for at-risk and non-targeted units, large family units, senior units, and single room and special needs units. Property developers should note that the agency plans to institute these updated operating cost minimums for applications submitted in 2013 and 2014. Now, we've linked to the operating cost summary minimums at the Affordable Housing Resources Center at the novoco.com website. You can also access the operating cost summary minimums for 2013 and 2014 on TCAC's website. In renewable energy tax credit news, the American Taxpayer Relief Act of 2012 that was enacted last week made a significant change to the production tax credit and the investment tax credit that applies to otherwise PTC eligible facilities. These are facilities such as those that generate electricity using wind, geothermal, biomass, landfill gas, municipal solid waste, hydroelectric production, and marine and hydrokinetic energy. Now, under the law, all of these facilities are now eligible for the production tax credit or the 30% ITC, provided the facility begins construction not later than December 31, 2013. Now, I emphasize begins construction because formerly, the test had been whether or not the facility was placed in service by that date, or even earlier in the case of wind. Now, at the time of this recording, guidance had not been issued on what it means to begin construction for the purposes of the new law. 
However, an analysis published last week, Lawford Nixon Peabody, suggested that the Treasury Department may adopt rules similar to those it uses in administering the Section 1603 cash grant program. I know a lot of our listeners have worked with us here at Novograd extensively on assessing whether or not a project has met this test under the 1603 cash grant program. As such, this topic will be discussed in more detail in the next issue of the Novograd Journal of Tax Credits. So, if you're not already a subscriber, I encourage you to sign up. You can order a subscription or request a free sample issue online at www.novaco.com products. And if you have questions about how the new law may affect your renewable energy development plans, please contact my partner, Stephen Tracy, here in our San Francisco office, or my partner, Tony Grapponi, in our Boston, Massachusetts office. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. 2013 looks to be another interesting year in the area of affordable housing, community development, and historic tax credit tax policy. As such, I invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. In the interim, I do hope to see you at the Novogratic Tax Credit Conference later this week in Miami, and I hope that you'll follow me on Twitter. This is Michael Novogratic, and I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogradic and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogradic and Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.